My name's Adele Onyango and welcome to another episode of Legally Clueless. No, seriously, I have no clue what I'm doing, but I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. Hello and welcome to episode 89. Oh my god, 89 of Legally Clueless. Do you understand that we are 11 episodes away from 100 episodes? Also, I know this is way, way, way in advance, but the 100th episode will be out on February 8th and my birthday is February 5th. So of course, I'm planning something. (laughs) If we have to do it virtually, we will. I think it's monumental episode. A hundred epi- What? A hundred- What? (laughs) Anyway, before we get ahead of ourselves, this is episode 89. I'm so happy that you're listening to this podcast. Do remember you can join us on our Instagram page. That's at Legally Clueless Podcast. If you want to chit chat about the podcast and you love to do that on Twitter, remember you can use the hashtag Legally Clueless. In fact, I feel like this week I've gotten such amazing tweets sent my way. I need to send some shout outs to people. So just humor me for a sec as my phone is almost dying. Oh, please don't die. I need to get these tweets. Okay, so big shout out to Sylvia Kendi. Oh my word, you send such kind words my way. I truly do appreciate them. I also got a tweet from Boaz Keter who said he was sinking into depression and then he found the podcast. So their mental apps, mental wellness apps that have shared that have helped him. Oh my word, I'm so happy for you Boaz and I hope you add on therapy onto them because the apps alone I don't think can do everything you need. So if you can and if you are able to access therapy, that would be fantastic. I also have to shout out Kwamboka Brooks. Ah, thank you so much, my dear. And yes, the storyteller from two episodes ago, Kagwe, who is just like family to me, man. So he posted that Legally Clueless is legit one of the best podcasts on the continent. That is hectic. And this week I needed all the love I could get. and good energy. So I really did appreciate the tweets that came my way. So if you want to head out on Twitter and talk about maybe a theme that was brought up in any of the episodes that resonated with you, just use the hashtag Legally Clueless. All right, later on in this episode on 100 African Stories, there's a story that I feel like is so powerful and will resonate with so many people. Listen to this. My own parents fighting a lot. I lived in a violent home. This evening, my dad is looking for his his book he went out of the house he came back with this wire stripped me off my clothes and started beating me up i was bleeding i was sweating and i'm screaming he gets into the kitchen comes back with a paraffin bottle and a matchbox (sighs) and then he smears some paraffin on my hand lights the matchstick and puts the flame on my hand. They took me to these people who pray for you, and it's quite dramatic. These guys are called Legio Maria here. Very dramatic prayers. Things were done on my body that were even more traumatizing. My dad coming from a polygamous home and witnessing all that he did just transferred the trauma down to us. That's actually a story by Onyango. So we share a surname, and it's coming up on 100 African Stories. Very powerful, but I will get into that a little later in the episode. I really do hope you had a brilliant week. I hope that there was good energy around you. I've found myself sending, you know how you send like sweet messages to your friends? (laughs) If you don't, please start doing that. And you wish certain things into their lives. And so you'll be like, oh, love and light. I used to say love and light a lot. Right now, yes, light is still there, but I really do send peace to people and clarity. (laughs) I don't know that it's age, but those two things, man. I really hope that your week was drenched in them. For me, just three things to catch up on. The first one being video content. I don't know if it was the last episode where I was kind of like doubting whether I was going to share certain video I'd recorded and edited The self-doubt is so real when it comes to video. When it comes to the podcast, 
I think you and I have done a really good job in making this space very safe, a space where we can be as vulnerable as possible. But then with video and then put it up on like my social media platforms, it's like, oh my God, yes, there are great people on the internet, but there are also some really messed up people as well who say the most <laughs> nonsense of things. And so it's just like, ah, I don't want any of that energy. I've really been enjoying this space so that came with a bit of self-doubt but I still ended up putting out the video so far I've recorded about two more videos I just don't know if I'm gonna put them up or not <laughs> I'm working through the self-doubt I'm working through it the second win is that this marks five weeks coffee free oh my word you know what's so funny is my therapist this week sent me an email and I've mentioned this in other episodes. She was based in Kenya for quite a few years and then relocated elsewhere. So we do our sessions virtually, but she has linked me to someone else locally, especially in the last month where I had a bit of a breakdown and I needed to have an in-person session. But most of our sessions and interaction with my main therapist is virtually stroke online. So she sends me this email. And so the subject is, I told you so. So I'm wondering, what is this? Is this like an article? <laughs> oh, what is it? And I opened the email and in the body, she's written, refer to the subject of this email. <laughs> and I just needed this coffee thing. But let me tell you, I have seen a notable drop in how many mornings I wake up with those pangs of anxiety. Oh, and you just feel a bit lighter. The first three days, as I said, are hell, but it's worth it. Like just push through those first three days. If you have anxiety, coffee does not need to be anywhere in your diet. Like not even milked coffee. You know, like how we say, oh, it's not black coffee, so it's not so strong. Or if it's not this, that or the other. Even if you add milk, man, just... Just take it out of your diet and you'll see the wonders that come with it. the peace. Ah! But this week, I did have quite a few pangs of anxiety. One possibly linked to my period approaching because also I'm so bloated. Like I look <laughs> slightly pregnant. <laughs> like even my pants. Ah, let me tell you, even my pants that fit every other week of the month are like threatening to bust. <laughs> if anybody else battles with bloating, please just let me know what you do. I've tried the whole drink more water thing. It doesn't have work fast enough. What what do what do we do? <laughs> what do we do? Anyway, that's one thing because like the week before my period, my anxiety flares up so that I know and I track using my app. But another thing is, first, I'm recording this on Saturday night because tomorrow, Sunday, remember the book deal I signed earlier this year? And it's a book that I'm co-authoring with this wonderful Kenyan woman called Lanji, who's grown to be such a great friend. Well, we're having the private book preview for it tomorrow. Can you imagine it? Ah! Oh my God, I'm just so excited. I'm so giddy. I don't know how I'm going to sleep tonight. <laughs> I really don't know how I'm going to sleep tonight because I'm just like, oh, can tomorrow get here? But then also at the same time, I'm like, do I really want it to get here? It's such a personal thing that I've written in that book. And now all these people will know about it. So I'm going through those emotions right now as I record that. But I'm super excited. So the private preview is very intimate. Both of us had only eight people on our guest list. Mine obviously made up of mainly family and two close friends. <laughs> In fact, I was talking to Val, my best friend, about it. And she was just like, oh my God, you only had eight people to invite. I would really struggle figuring out who gets on the list. And I told her, sis, I really did not struggle at all. <laughs> oh my God. I think first, you know, I already had a very small circle that was made up of Val, who's my partner, is on there. My sisters, who are two then there's Stephanie, who's basically my sister. Then there's Val, my best friend. There's Roy. And then the list is done. <laughs> okay, I'm laughing at myself. Because I genuinely, even this year, my circle just kind of shrunk. And somebody who, I can't remember who was telling me this. And they're 
much older than me, closer to their 40s. And they were telling me, oh, it's just begun, imagine. I was like, what do you mean it's just begun? I only have like two friends. (laughs) And by friends, I mean like, you know, inner circle friends, the people who you will chat at odd hours of the night and who will know intimate details about what you're going through. So I was just like, so now if you're telling me it's going to get smaller, what what are you telling me? Will I be alone in my 40s? <laughs> anyway, so that's how intimate tomorrow is going to be. So both Lanji and I are going to read out certain bits of our chapters in the book. Everybody who comes is going to, through a QR code, get to see a preview, a little taster of what's going to be in the book. We already did the photo shoot. I'm not sure I shared that in any of the previous podcast episodes. I think I was too shy to. And so we already have like what's going to be the cover of the book. Oh my God, I'm so excited for that book. But at the same time, I'm so nervous about it. So that's happening tomorrow. And I'm going to carry my microphone with me. And if there are any interesting bits that I think I can share with you, because obviously there's some stuff that I'm not allowed to share just yet. So if there are things that I can share with you in this episode much later on, I will. If I don't revisit (laughs) the book preview, just know that either there was nothing that I'm allowed to share or I was too busy crying or too busy being in the moment to even remember my microphone because that can happen. But if there's something that I can record and include in this episode a little later on, I will. All right, so those are my three things from this past week. Let's get to the song of the week that is so amazing. I just discovered so much good music that I feel like I have songs of the week for the next 10 weeks. Uh, I can't wait. I feel like sharing all of them now, but we'll start slow. But I have two that I really need to pick which one. Oh, which one are you going with right now, Adele? Okay, I'll go with the one that I'm really feeling in my heart, which is Blessed. Blessed is a song off of WizKid's new album, and it features Damien Marley, who is a god in my head. And we are best friends. He just doesn't know it yet. Ah, the song is just, it's such a good escape. It's such a good escape. I don't know what is going on in your life right now. I don't know what you're overthinking about or is that that's clouding your peace. Please just turn on that song. First, of course, Damien Mali. His lyrics are always very intentional. Secondly, there are these horns in the song that are just so like groovy. You know what I'm groovy? (laughs) Who uses that word? (laughs) Whatever. Groovy. Oh God. So yeah, they're they're that. <laughs> you listen and describe the horns how you want to describe them, but it's just such a beautiful song. So I'm going to put a link to the song in the description of this episode. Listen to it and I hope you groove to it <laughs> as much as I did. So let's jump into a hundred African stories. This story is by Onyango. He sent in a story demo to the legally clueless hotline number. And then we set a date and time to record the story. There's so many things that he touches on that are just so powerful. Oh my God, from just parent-child relationships, childhood trauma, how that affects you, masculinity. So many important things come up in his story. But I do have to say that he does reference suicidal episodes. And I know that could be triggering to some. So if that's triggering to you, you may want to hold off on this story. A hundred African stories on Legally Clueless. Stories from Africa. My name is Onyango Otieno or Ricks. Rick's poet. I grew up in the eastern side of Nairobi, Kenya, an estate called Huruma, where I witnessed a lot of things growing up, much of it was my own parents fighting a lot. I lived in a violent home, in a violent environment. As a young boy witnessing, you know, all these happenings around me made me curious about adults and human beings because people are fighting all the time. In addition to the violence that was going on at home between my parents, it was my dad especially uh, beating me up senselessly most times. I was used to that. I was used to being beaten up for silly mistakes. And uh, I mean, as a young boy, I was cheeky, but not that cheeky. I mean, you'd, you'd, you'd steal things like five shillings to go get mutura. I don't know the mutura word for Englishman. 
Um, <laughs> you'd go get sweets and biscuits and stuff like that. Now, both my parents were teachers. I went to the same school my dad taught in. So we lived in a single room, uh, a house that had like a small kitchen. And this one evening in 1998, I was 10 years old. He comes back home and starts looking for some novel. We had so many books at home, so many. I mean, my dad being a teacher, you'd expect the same of a, of a teacher in his house. Now, this evening was very different. My dad kept looking for this book. It was a novel by Bill Cosby. All I remember is it had a white cover. I can't remember anything else about it. Those days, Bill Cosby was really big, so we, we used to watch him on TV. This evening, my dad is looking for his his book, um, and he says he had borrowed it from a kid he used to tutor, and the kid needs it back. For around 45 minutes, you know, in a in a single room, if something is not in, in the four corners, it's not in that house. It got to a point in his search, he turned to me and he was like, he said it in Swahili, or might you be the one who took the book? And I'm like, no, I, I, I haven't taken the book. Uh, for me, I, I wasn't so much into books. In fact, stealing a novel would sound like a, a whole bank heist to me at that level of my life. With a lot of, again, with many of our parents, something would come from a suspicion to an accusation so quick. So he ended up asking me, in this house, does your mother go to school? No, can he, can she steal a book? No, does the housekeeper go to school? No, can she steal a book? <laughs> no, you're the only person in this house who goes to school. So you probably are the one who took the book. Now, my dad used to beat you with his soul. It was like everything he had held in for all his life would come out the moment he starts beating you up. But this night was also quite different. So because he was almost convinced I had taken the book and it belonged to someone else and he needed to return it, he decided to beat it out of me. So I remember uh, we had these telephone copper wires that like had copper wire inside and uh, insulated with this thick black rubber that our mothers would hang their clothes with. So he, he, he went out of the house, he came back with, with this, this wire and stripped me off my clothes and started beating me up. Get the book out. Where is the book? You're the only person in this house who goes to school. Get the book out. Where is the book? You have to say. You have to say. And I had a very small body within a matter of minutes because he was lashing my back like it was the end of time, man. And sometimes even telling that story, sometimes I just feel those lashes getting on my back it was crazy so this went on for around 20 minutes and they were like it felt like three good hours i was bleeding i was sweating and i'm screaming my mom is helpless my dad was those kind of people you couldn't tell anything it gets to a point i can start feeling my body getting weaker and weaker and i'm like in my small child intelligence i'm like yo today we have to lie that we did something we didn't really do, which is quite ironical because usually you lie that you haven't done something, yet you knew you did it. And I felt like maybe if I kept quiet, this guy was going to kill me because I wasn't sure how far he was ready to go. So I had to admit to taking a book I hadn't. I can't remember where I said I took it. I remember my dad looking at me with his bloodshot eyes so angry and he said i will do something to you that you'll never forget so he gets out of the house as if he'd planned all this it was like a script man he comes back with a sisal rope now i'm on the floor i'm doing my last bits of crying like <laughs> you know he ties my hands i'm naked i'm bleeding i'm sweating i'm crying he gets into the kitchen and comes back with a paraffin bottle you know is like a five liter jerry can and a matchbox now i'm not sure what he's planning to do does he want to burn me up tonight <sighs> and then he smears some paraffin on my hand like the top side of my palm and lights the matchstick and puts the flame on my hand 
for most part, I can't quite remember how painful that was because I think over the years, my brain really tried to shut off that moment just so that it could protect me. But what I remember so vividly was feeling like something broke inside me. Something I, I, I didn't have words for, just something just broke. And from that day, I've, I've never been the same. I couldn't walk for two weeks. My mom tried to nurse me. Even when I went back to school, I, I couldn't know what I would tell my friends happened to me, you know. And to imagine I have to live with lies just so that I could protect my abuser, who was my father, who people knew so much and respected. I just could never feel comfortable around him again. I looked at him with so much fear. I would get so much um, anxiety anytime he'd come home. I looked for so many ways to be away from home just so that I didn't have to be around his energy. And because he was a very controlling man, he wanted to know what you're doing, where you are, who you're with and stuff like that. So I had to be extra cheeky to, you know, find ways to just get my personal space because we lived in a single room you, everybody is in there and sometimes when you need personal space you ca you just can't get it so for me it was being out with my friends which my dad really disliked five years after this incident i get into my first year of high school he didn't like my primary school exam grades which were fairly good actually but he had just so many expectations over me that you know being a teacher he wanted his son to be in the papers as you know among the top performers and, and stuff like that but i i got generally good marks so I was taken to a school in the western side of Kenya. By then, it was called Nyanza province. Uh, right now, it's a place called Migori, Migori County. I It was very far away from home, but it was my mom's side of home. Like, my mom comes from those ends. The first thing I remember already... As a child in our home, I felt neglected because nobody would attend to my emotional needs because they were fighting all the time. So being taken away so far away from home also felt like it was one thing, rejection, and another thing, further neglect. I didn't have the urge to read. I didn't have the urge to be around people. I withdrew so much. And this is when my depression kicked in and I didn't even know it was depression until 15 years later. So here I am, I'm 15, I'm turning 16. I stopped going to class. I'm hanging out in the school bathrooms by my own because it was a huge school. So you would wander around um, without people really seeing you. I never bathed. I never showered. I Sometimes I, th I remember actually the longest streak of living in school without showering was like nine straight days, which was insane. I played a lot of football still. So I'd play football, come back in the evening, smear myself like uh, with my towel and stuff, get some perfume on, petroleum jelly, go to class. And that was my life. And then I got into trouble. I stole some, because you know, I never used to wash my own clothes. So I would steal people's clothes and my box wasn't lockable. Everything about me was just odd. So I was expelled from school and uh, I came back home 2004. I'm turning 16. My parents are still fighting. Now I'm spending more time at home. It's a crazy environment. And this is the time I start writing poetry because I had so much pain. I felt like if I didn't get something out, I was going to die. And I start writing. And this is when like the my passion for journalism comes in because I'm reading so many newspapers at home. I had all the time. I, In fact, I, I would sit down and just read obituaries because I had so much time. So I, I, I managed to go back to school. But this, this year, 2004, was my hardest because this is the time I was also running away from home a lot. It was my way of communicating that I need help and yet 
I didn't have the words to say that. I didn't even have the language to say that. My parents weren't even, didn't have the emotional capacity to understand. Even though I think my mother had an idea of my emotional suffering. So we stayed uh, something like 30 kilometers away from Nairobi town, the city center, which is a place called Mlolongo. Um, And I remember walking 30 kilometers to Nairobi Central Business District because I was running away from home and I needed peace of mind. I became a street boy for a while there until I was busted because I was I used to shoplift from convenience stores and supermarkets, we call them that here. Kenyans being Kenyans, they administered some mob justice on me and they called my father. My father got me back home. He tried to beat me up more and it was my first time to stand up against him to say you're never gonna beat me again and I'm tired of this life now at the end of that year I I was feeling suicidal and uh, this time I stole his ATM card and um, got some money out and traveled all the way to Mombasa I wanted to go and die somewhere nobody knew me uh, get hit by a lorry die in the ocean or something and I was a little lucky I had friends who were um, living far off uh, in Malindi, that's coastal Kenya. I remember when I got back home later, they took me to these people who pray for you and, and, and stuff like that. It's quite dramatic. These guys are called Lejo Maria here. But they are, they are very dramatic prayers. Things things were done on my body that were if, even more traumatizing. I went back to school. I managed to finish my O-level and I, I went to Uganda to do my A-level. I came back. I joined uh, Daystar University. I really wanted to be a journalist now. I started studying communications and in between that I had to drop out because mom and dad were still fighting more and they couldn't raise my school fees so I had I had to look for other things to do with my life that's when the poetry stepped up a little bit because now I started I had to start doing something with my life and I'd you know show up in poetry gigs in Nairobi and that's how people sort of started getting to know me but when I got to 20 eight years old, I had another phase of depression. And this time it came really, really hard and I felt suicidal again. Um, and at this point of my life, I I was coming off a toxic relationship. I, I, I was running an organization that we had issues within it and some things hadn't gone right. So I was really, really stressed up about it. I remember coming home one day and taking a two hour long shower, asking myself, so what am I going to do with myself when I get out of here? It was at the backdrop of losing two male friends of mine who had died by suicide. And so it felt like man, wherever these guys are, they're not worried. They're not worried about rent. They're not worried about traffic. They're not worried about their next meal. So they're probably resting and it's probably a good idea to to join them, you know? So I remember thinking, do I, do I hang myself in the house? Do I throw myself down the balcony? Do I, because I'm at the edge. I'm tired. I'm tired of living this life. And this feeling was very, very familiar because it was the same thing I had when I was 16 years old that just feeling so tired and everything looks so big and you just feel defeated and several other times in between uh, when I was 16 and 28 in between that so as it was even from the beginning writing was my way out and I remember just getting out of the bathroom leaving the water coming down with my naked body and dragging my body to my laptop and I opened it I got onto my Facebook and I posted what I'm going through. I felt it was important for me to just reach out somewhere that somebody would help, somebody would hear. Um, And it seemed like a very revolutionary thing because it's not every day that you hear a man, what's of an African man talking about his pain and I got so much feedback, like it was insane. I got so much feedback from so many people. But what touched me most was my closest friends would come home and open the curtains for me. They would, and these are guy friends, like my guy, close circle guy friends. And they would cook for me and they would 
make sure that I'm taking a shower. And one of them is a DJ. So they will come home and he will do these live mixes and just to cheer me up. And even though every time they left, especially during the night, I had to face my demons once more. I was curious this time to understand why does this feeling keep coming back? What is it really about? More so, it was because so many people had written to me in my inbox that I had explained something they were going through and they didn't have the language to express it. Now that I was like, how come so many of us are going through this, but nobody's talking about it. So I got online and um, I just remember typing in feeling suicidal. And that's when all these terminologies around mental health and anxiety, I didn't even know there's such a thing called anxiety. Post-traumatic stress came and, and stuff like that. So the more I read, the more I saw myself in these words, I was like, yeah, I actually re really need to seek help. And the more I sought out information, I understood that from that day in 1998, when my dad burnt my hand, the trauma began from there. And it was so complex because the violence kept going on and on and on. So I suffered physically, I suffered emotionally, and I suffered psychologically i had to seek help so i would document my healing processes and people would really you know show their love and of course there are so many others especially men who are like yo what what does it help the world if you come to share your emotions here you, you need to toughen up you know and stuff like that i realized everywhere around me there is so much violence and this violence is nearly probably more than 80 percent uh, the reasons why we have so many mental health uh, cases um, in my country. And what bothered me mostly also is when I went out to look for stories, I couldn't find African stories. I only found white people's stories around mental health. And I said, oh, this is such a huge, you know, gap here. There's a hole here that needs to be filled with stories. So I said, okay, I'm going to start with me uh, to sort of, help people normalize conversations around mental health and mental health and especially around masculinity as well. The challenges were real because I was facing a whole system that encourages you to keep quiet from the moment you were a boy. We were being toughened up for a tough world, a tough, a tough life in our future. So from from writing about gender-based violence, I went into writing about mental health. Then I went into now talking about masculinity and that is where it's like the epicenter of all the violence that I have witnessed all my life. My dad coming from a polygamous home and witnessing all that he did just transferred the trauma down to us. Anytime I go through therapy uh, as I am even now, I realize every word he said that was out to hurt me, every beating he gave me, Every kind of manipulation he did against me had an implication that stayed so long within me. And so I had to be so deliberate to walk myself through those pains, even though it didn't matter whether the world understood it or not, I had to humanize myself. I mean, when I realized, especially... I, I got on Google and all these terminologies came and I started reading about it and uh, seeing myself in these words. I said, oh man, I, I really do need help. I wanted to get better. I knew I had so much I had already tried to tackle on my own, but this needed some kind of either communal or professional help. And that's when I started reaching out to therapy services because I knew I had so much to unpack, but it was going to be so difficult to do it on my own. My friends could only be there as much as they could be because uh, also, also in their emotional capacity. And judging from the fact that majority of them are men, they were also dealing with their own things, uh, which also probably needed therapy. So they tried to be there for the much they could be, especially in that present moment. But for a lot around my past and my childhood, I needed somebody else 
probably a professional who would help me know how to process what really happened to me and what it did to me. It has not been easy. It's in fact one of the most like hardest things I've had to do with my life because anytime you go through the sessions, you have to relieve those moments. And sometimes anytime, let's say I would get into a relationship, those things will come out again. So again, and then I go, I put my walls up i stopped i stopped communicating i go to my shell and it's hard to relate to me again so i would say probably it's something i did to save my life that's the best way i'll put it because if if i didn't get out to seek help i'm not sure i'd be here today i'm not sure i'd be here today because some of those things are heavy um <laughs> my dad my dad is not is not an easy man my dad is not an easy man. I remember in 2015, they had another really, really nasty fight. And uh, I took it upon myself to call them for a meeting, which was like a suicidal thing. You don't call African parents for a meeting. Who are you? Uh, and I sat with my mom uh, separately, my dad separately. My mom and I, we, we, we talk, we pretty much talk. But my dad, dad... Because he views himself as, you know, the chief dawn and he is the law and you can't tell him anything about anything around uh, how to run his family, how to do his life and stuff. He said something that struck me. He said, I quote, I don't come to you with my problems because you'll think I'm weak. That one statement, I think, changed my life because I didn't get angry. I just asked myself, how much pain must this man be in for him to think? Me, his son, he can't come to me to, to, to tell me his problems because I'll think he's weak. And yet, in his mind, he thinks I look at him as this perfect human, this perfect God. By that time, it was 26, 27 years age, I, I had seen everything. If it was weakness, I had seen it all. So for him to imagine, despite all that that had happened, that I was still viewing, viewing him as some kind of spotless God, that showed there was a disconnect somewhere. So that's when I started being curious about his own life because he was the center of my pain. And I wanted to decentralize that pain from him just so that I could live my life. So I started talking to some of my uncles and I understood, started understanding, and even my mom, because my mom married really early, uh, the kind of environment my father grew up in and what could have informed his own violence and his own traumas and stuff like that. So I knew I couldn't change him. I knew I couldn't get to him and tell him, yo, you need psychotherapy. You need some kind of psychological help. He wouldn't even think of it like that. I just sort of uh, started my own healing journey and we are not good friends. I have accepted that we may never come to a place where we are as close as I hoped a son and his father would be. Because even at the moment, he is still quite manipulative. He's still not a very open person. He's still quite a sly person. I accepted that the future I had hoped to have with my dad may never come to be. So I'm in a place where if it happens, that's a good thing. If it doesn't happen, it's not a bad thing either. I have to live my life. What happened, happened. Who he is, is who he is. If he would love to change and he would need my help, I would be there. But for me, my priority is to make sure my mother is safe um, I have a 17-year-old sister and uh, a 25-year-old brother. I just want to make sure their lives are okay and I am okay. And right now, my sister being 17, it's a very critical time in her life. I, I've got to be there again <laughs> as a big brother. And because, you know, it's a different world now and a lot of young people just need so much emotional support. So I have to take care of myself before I could even know how to show up for people around me. So for dad, I'm like, I love him, but from far, I have to protect myself against any of his upheavals and, 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 and stuff. I don't even have ill feelings. I, I, I let go of everything that happened, everything that he did and stuff because I couldn't keep bearing it inside me. It was too heavy for me. And now I also stopped glorifying him as, oh, you know, my father, 
you know, you, you're supposed to be here for me and stuff. I started actually just looking at him as a human being, as somebody who is dealing with his own things and cannot show up for me because he's he's probably also still looking for himself. He's probably still looking for his father's love. That's, that's the little child inside him. He's in his 50s now, but the wounded child inside him is so alive. I mean, he's just so alive. So I'm like... It, it happens and this is the reality and we gotta do life like this um there are many different things they may not be every day but it probably because i have incorporated them maybe in my life i almost do them subconsciously one thing is spreading my bed now i don't do this every day but uh, growing up in a home and you know my mom insisted you have you have to spread your bed you have to spread your bed sometimes no tea if you haven't spread your bed i found as i grew older this was something i actually enjoyed doing and it it gave me some kind of peace so i remember on the days i couldn't do much with my life uh, when i was depressed and my my friends will be here the f sometimes the only thing i would do during the day the whole day was just spread my bed i would wake up and take my time and fold the sheets here and do that and you know place the pillows nicely and i don't s sleep in a huge bed but it just it was fun to do that just seeing some some cleanliness so i listen to lots of music as well uh music is like an everyday food in my life i have to listen to music every day i read a lot as well because i have to constantly be feeding my mind with either new information or information that will help me understand things better uh, philosophy religion sex politics society stuff just stuff um, but mostly is i want to understand more about where i'm from and to to find words and language to know how to interconnect it with the grander scheme of things like what is this connected to and how is it connected to something else just so that even in my storytelling i would help people process their own lives better as i process mine better as well and then i hang out with my buddies quite a lot we play football so much we talk about our emotions we humanize ourselves um, one of us is married. Actually, two. Uh, my closest buddy, the second guy, got married just last weekend. But he he was always all the way in Germany, so we couldn't be there. Uh, so we talk about these issues. We talk about relationships. We talk about our struggles. And for me, uh, my guy friends who I've known for the last ten years have been the people who took me through my twenties because. I think I would have I, I would have blacked out at some point if I didn't have people to talk to. It was the first group of men who showed me there's a possibility to actually talk about your emotions and not be judged for it. So I thank God for them extremely so 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 much. So for me, music, reading, I love sports as well. You know, football and uh, athletics. I read and write and again poetry is that thing for me so it's a collection of many small different things that I do uh, nearly every day almost subconsciously I would really like to talk to men man especially Kenyan African men black men we've been running for too long we've been blaming other people either our fathers or the people who came before us for things that happened to us and a lot of it is true we 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 are hurt we are in pain and it's okay but we can't keep living in that bottomless pit for so long anymore we have to get to a point where now we have to talk to each other as guys we can't keep relying on women to do the emotional labor for us because already the world is too difficult a place for women we have to get to a place now where we are saying we are not running anymore it is difficult it has worked for me in the beginning it seemed like something impossible but the more you get at it the more you talk the more you open up the easier you the lighter you become the easier you feel it's actually okay to talk about what you're going through we didn't grow up with healthy male figures to look up to and say yo okay this is actually good and and i respect that and because of the violence that was already militarized upon us when we were boys we grew up anticipating the promises that patriarchy was gonna give us in our adult lives but now we get there and we realize it's, it's it was an illusion it's not true
catch more African stories in the next episode of Legally Clueless. Oh man, I really hope that you enjoyed that story by Onyango. When I recorded it, which was quite a few weeks ago, maybe even months ago, I had actually just shared on an episode how I know I'm not okay is when I miss certain steps in my morning routine and the most significant step is spreading my bed. So when he said that while we were recording, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I'm exactly the same. Um, I also really just appreciated how vulnerable he was in sharing his experience, of course, but also the clarity in understanding the lies when it comes to the definition of masculinity. And it takes a very honest person to be able to identify those gaps, confront them, and then want to change them. So I really did appreciate that he brought that up. Oh, and also when he talked about the tough part about therapy being how you have to relieve the moments. Oh my God. I was just like, yes, 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 yes. Especially now, the point I'm at in terms of therapy and with the recent project I was working on that just re-triggered my entire experience for me. I think many people drop out of therapy at those points when you have to confront the pain, the, the anguish and the actual events, like you're almost walking through it all over again. It's necessary, but it's very, oh my God, it can be gut-wrenching. And then lastly, oh yeah, when he talked about the anxiety you get when growing up in a violent home. I identified with that because my dad, late dad, was very abusive to my mom. And of course, my mom left him when I was, what, in class five, class six, thereabouts. But before then, I remember, which was such a sad memory, because at that age, surely those are not the prayers I should be making. But every time he came home, I would be praying and trying to like make deals with God like, please just let him be nice tonight. Like, let there be no violence tonight. Let's just have a normal night. Please, 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 please. Obviously, at the time, I didn't have a name for it. But when I would hear his horn at the gate, there's a feeling I'd get inside. Just like, oh, my God, everything was going so well. And then now this guy's come. Is he going to be mean? Is he not? Is he going to be kind? What's going to happen? I didn't have a name for it, which really is anxiety. But, ah. Uh, I'm just so thankful my mom took us out of that experience. But Onyango's story, so much, so much to relate with. And I would definitely love to hear your thoughts on it. You can send those to the Legally Clueless hotline number. You can just send a voice message over there. The hotline number is plus 254-768-628-790. So you can send that via WhatsApp, wherever you are in the world. You can send send a voice note. And if you want to share your story on this podcast, you can share your one-minute story demo, which is just you telling me a bit about the story you want to share. You can send that as well to the hotline. I'm recording this part of the podcast on Sunday night. I have just gotten home. Well, I'd say we, but Falgun has gone out to like look for dinner, last minute dinner for us. I've just gotten home from the private book preview that I spoke about earlier in this episode. And <laughs> well, I did remember to record certain things with my camera, so I'm probably going to do a video about it. Fal, who's my partner, really helped with that. Roy, my friend, also helped with that. So <laughs> if it wasn't for them, I think I'd have forgotten to record anything because by the time I got to the event I didn't even know where my camera was but I didn't record anything on my microphone well the one thing that I did record was like afterwards when we were done and we were just celebrating and toasting and it just wouldn't make sense to share but it was so beautiful I slightly broke down during my reading so I had to read a bit of what I had written for the book and I chose an entry that spoke about just my relationship with my body, how that's affected my relationships at the time. So, you know, relationships with guys I was with at the time. <sighs> at a point, I was just like, I couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> and my sister had to bring me like, bring me tissue. And she was like, do you want me to stand with you? I was like, no, I can handle it. But it was, it was such a powerful afternoon. It was so good to share it with people who have held my hands in various settings. So from my favorite auntie, Auntie Jane, to my sisters, to my partner, 
to my sister's partners, because the way my family is, once you join us, <laughs> you become one inside deep. And they they have really been there for me. Um, to my friends. I mean, I had Val, my best friend who's been on this podcast, Roy, and and just having people who have seen me at my weakest in terms of dealing with this well, not dealing, healing with this situation. And for them to see how it's culmin- culminated, is that the word? Yeah, culminated to this moment. It was just so powerful to share it with them. I really can't wait for you to read the book. We put our heart, soul and sweat into it. And I think we have something that's very impactful. So the, the book will be launched early next year. Bit of a delay because of COVID. And you can be sure that I will share all the details here so that you can grab a copy. Or if the launch is not virtual, you can come for the launch. I'm just so, so proud. So I'm actually recording this still like all dressed up, face full of makeup. <laughs> I still even have my hat on. In terms of how it went down, I will work very hard to edit the video and have that out at some point this week. So you'll probably be seeing that on my social media handles, which is just a Delonyango. Anyway, I, I'm going to end things with a message that I got on the hotline number that was sending such good energy my, my way. But even away from that, I think what touches me the most is when I come across messages of you relating with something on the podcast. Ah, that that does it for me because I want this to be a space where you feel less alone. Hello, Adele. I'm Jackie. I love listening to your podcast so much. The one thing that I appreciate more than anything is how openly you talk about your mental wellness, the anxiety, even the mindfulness. I am a big fan of mindfulness because I have a very overthinking mind, but I've learned to take deep breaths and try to get myself to the present moment. I especially loved when you shared the episode on your job and resigning and everything. And I feel you because I resigned from a job last year and I dealt with a lot of anxiety. Like every single day, anxiety and (laughs) anxiety used to take over me. Every time I woke up in the morning, I was like, oh my God, I have to fucking go back to that place again. (sighs) And the sexism in that place was just on another level. The sexual harassment, my God, my God. I used to have panic attacks in my in the bathroom every day thank you for the courage to share your story thank you for the courage of the people that share their stories they encourage me so much even as i'm transitioning to something else as i'm trying to look at where my passion aligns and i am so thankful for you for your podcast you're so strong you're you're such a good storyteller oh my god your laugh your laugh is everything Thank you for this space. Thank you for sharing and continue sharing. Make us, you know, feel not alone. That's it for this episode of Legally Clueless. You can share this podcast with your friends. You can keep it for yourself. I'm not judging. Just make sure you're here next week for the next episode.